All right, uh, we are in Ephesians. We're going to keep going in Ephesians this morning. Uh, you can turn there, Ephesians 3, 13 is where we'll be starting. We're going we're gonna to go through the first part of um, the first half of verse 17. So I'm just going to start by reading, reading the scripture here, Ephesians 3.13. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations uh, for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened or empowered with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Um, I'll stop in there. I'll probably go over the first couple of verses kind of uh, quickly uh, because I think they're, they're rather straightforward. And then uh, I'd like to spend most of our time on the on the prayer here where Paul asks God to strengthen the, the church in, in the inner man by his spirit. Um, <clears throat> this first verse in, uh, in 13, Paul just asks them not to lose heart at his tribulations because it's their glory. And um, there's a variety of views on what, what he means by this, but I suppose he simply means that his president, uh, his imprisonment, he's in prison when he writes uh, these letters, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, they're sometimes called the prison epistles, they're probably written while he was in jail, but uh, I, I think it's probably uh, referring to the fact that his present imprisonment is uh, something they, they shouldn't despair over since he's imprisoned for nothing less than proclaiming to them and causing them to know the glory of God. So Paul's body suffers, but his gospel goes forth. You know, his, ves his vessel is treated harshly, but the treasure, the treasure is spreading throughout uh, the Roman Empire. So he's saying, like, don't lose heart at my current circumstances. Look how wonderfully it's turning out for you and for the other churches. And if he's saying more than that by this, I don't, I don't know what he's saying. So that's kind of what I see there. But then he begins to describe to them how and why he prays for them. And that's kind of what I want to get into. He says, in essence, here's why I'm praying. Here's, here's, <clears throat> here's what I long to see happen uh, among you. Here's why I bow my knees to the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Before I get into the prayer, I just want to say a few things about this, this statement. When, when Paul states that the entire family in heaven and on earth gets its, name, uh, gets its name from the Father, he doesn't mean that God, God is kind of up there calling one you know, family the Johnsons, and then there's, oh, we'll call that one the Hendersons, and there's the Griswolds or whatever. Um, he's not... He's not giving God credit for choosing family names. He isn't even talking about natural families at all. You'll notice he says the whole family and not every family. It's talking, it's talking about one family, not a bunch of anything. It's talking about the entire family of God sharing the name of God and not a bunch of families uh, being labeled or something by God. And... Uh, <clears throat> uh, 
when, when God's family, who, who is said to uh, bear his name, uh, that, that name is, first of all, the, fa- the, the, the only reason they are God's family is because they have been born of his spirit and placed into his son. But when it's said that they bear his name, it's speaking, that word name is speaking of his nature, his character, his life, his identity, his person. So, so we, we who are born of his seed have come to share that name. And whether we walk in that name or pray in that name or do all things out from that name, that, that depends entirely on whether we know that name. Uh, but regardless, if we're born of his seed, if we're born into that spirit, we have been named by God. I think we often have kind of shallow um, and somewhat silly, somewhat silly comprehension of, of the name of God. For instance, we think that praying in Jesus' name is mouthing the word Jesus at the end of our prayer. You know, we pray in our own name is what's happening. We stick his name on the end of it, you know, in the name of Jesus. And, and then we think if we forget that part, then the prayer doesn't really count or something, you know, or it probably won't happen if you forget to say that. And that's just really weird if you think about it. Um, or, or we think that using, using God's name in vain is just, you know, when we, when we say an inappropriate word or something after we, after we um, drop a hammer on our foot or something. And, and we, we don't understand that it has much more to do with attaching his name to everything of ourselves that is vanity. Attaching his name to our life. Um, so, anyway, you know, if you, just, if you read John 17, um, Jesus says a lot about this name. The name, he says, in fact, John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of, out of the world. I have manifested your name. That's not like, he's not talking about a bumper sticker he had on the back of his chariot that said, you know, I love Yahweh or something. He's not talking about a title. He's talking about, uh, he's talking about living in and in all things making known the life, the nature, the character, the person, the name of God. And that's the sense in which God has given us his name. That's the sense in which his children, those sharing the life of his only begotten son are called the family of God. And he says, both those on and those not on the earth. Okay, now we're getting into what I, what I want to talk about. So then he starts to pray. He says, Here, here's, in essence, here's why I bow my knees to God. Here's, here's what I pray for you, Ephesians. I pray that God would grant you, according to his abundance, to be empowered with might or strengthened with power, or however you want to read it, through his spirit in the inner man. <clears throat> to the end that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What, what is Paul talking about here? What does it mean to be strengthened with power in the inner man by the Spirit? What is that, what is that reality? Uh, what does it mean that Christ dwell in our hearts through faith? If I were to answer that question in just a single sentence, I would say that what Paul is doing here 
is he's, he's talking about the eternal purpose of God that he's been talking about for several verses, and he's saying, here's how it actually works in you and I. Remember, we, we just spent four weeks talking about the reality of God's finished work in, in creating an eternal habitation. The temple of God is what we entitled the messages. That that comes forth through the resurrection. And we talked at length about his completed plan, how he has realized this goal, how he has, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, established one new man, a body, a body, a temple, a city, a habitation in the saints. And, and we have become to him both his eternal dwelling place and we have become the vehicle for his increase and his expression in the earth. Well, if Ephesians 2:20 through 3:13 was the what of God's eternal purpose, then this here is the, is the how. This is the how. In other words, here Paul begins to pray that what God has finished through the cross would begin to powerfully work in the inner man. In the inner man of those who have come to Christ. So Paul describes how, how the Christ who has been crucified, dead, and raised now begins to dwell in, that is, that doesn't mean he is there, that means he operates there. He, how, how he operates in or functions in or influences or transforms the human soul. This is the what. I mean, he, he describes first the what of, of the, uh, the eternal plan of God, and here, here comes the how. Here he prays that what God has established in the resurrection would be established in the soul of man. And what God has made obsolete in the cross would be circumcised from the soul. What God has made uh, king and head would have the liberty to reign and rule in in a body, in a kingdom, which, which is what you are. So in a word, you you could say that we're talking about spiritual growth. But I use all this other language, um, uh, all this other language mostly because they're just, you know, I'm trying to describe spiritual growth, but the problem with the word spiritual growth is that it already has, you say the words and it already has 150 different definitions applied to it depending on what church you were raised in, you know. and that happens because not realizing that growth is the appropriation of God's finished work to the soul of man by the Spirit of God, then we create our own understanding of it. And, and incidentally, it almost always corresponds with whatever we're good at. You know, For one person, it's a disciplined prayer life. For another person, growth has to do with learning scriptures. For another person, it's spiritual disciplines for another it's devotion to a ministry or a cause or another person it's music you know controlling inappropriate behavior you know we we um we call growth anything like that and um and i think that so many have given a lifetime to striving to achieve the wrong goal in the wrong way we struggle uh, in the body of Christ to, to achieve uh, uh, and to perform. I was reading something by a guy named James Fowler this week. He was saying that our lives are consumed with trying to overcome thoughts in the mind, feelings in the emotions, difficulties in decision-making, the urgings of our own desires. And we fight against... And he's right. You know, we, 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 
we labor against or we war against uh, ourselves with the power of ourselves. And it doesn't, it doesn't really accomplish anything. We make war on the flesh with the flesh. And winning is an impossibility. You know, I, I was talking in Colossians this morning. It's like um, putting a pair of boxer, boxing gloves on and, and, and fighting yourself. Like even if you win, you lose. Uh, we, we try to investigate the mind of God with the thoughts of man, and we find ourselves confused, and we wonder why. And we say things, you know, in all of this, why is Christianity so hard? And the answer is that's not Christianity. Never has been. But it's so popular, and you think, how could, how could all of these Christian how-to books and self-help books be inventions of the blind or creations of unbelief? You know, no, you, you, you decide, no, there's got to be something uniquely wrong with me. Everyone decides that, and then, you know, everyone thinks that that's, they're the only one thinking that. And so then we investigate the world of maybe Christian psychology or inner healing, but we find that so often we just come out with a, with a, with a slightly better version of ourselves. And then we conclude that it must be a matter of motivation. I need to find something that motivates me to pursue or motivates me to obey or, 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 or to change. And if I, could just, if I could just taste the power of God, I would be motivated. Or if I could just find the right leader, or if I could just establish the right model or, or get the fresh manna, you know, I need to hear the voice of God or I need to feel the hand of God or I need to be romanced by God. Or you know, Maybe if I study the past, I won't repeat it. Maybe if I fear the future, I'll live in, I, uh, you know, I'll live in a constant sense of anticipation for it. Or, you know, we try everything. Try everything to make this, this thing work. We pray, Father, you know, reveal to me what you want me to do. Show me where you want me to go. Tell me how you, how you want me to live. But don't, don't, don't let this guy tell me again that I am dead and my life is hidden with Christ and God. Don't, don't say that apart from, apart from you I can do nothing. Don't tell me I need to be strengthened by your spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in my heart by faith. Don't tell me that because I don't understand it. And I have no idea how to, how to make application to my life. See, right there is, and I want you to try to hear this this morning because I think this is such an enormous misunderstanding. Right there, when I, when I said uh, we don't have an understanding of how to make application to our life, right there, that, right there is an incredible misunderstanding of the gospel. Spiritual truth applies itself to your soul when it is known. It makes its own application by changing your universe. You don't have to try to apply anything. Changing where you know yourself to be, changing what you know yourself to be, changing your whole world will change you. Truth applies, this is what I'm saying, truth applies itself to your soul when it is known. You'll never have to figure out how to make application. And all of this that I've been saying is just an attempt to say that we've made something so simple and so wonderful into something so convoluted and so carnal and so hard. Christianity is Christ. Period. 
Once again, it is the life of God in the soul of man. And growth is the conquering of the soul by the Spirit of Christ. And it's nothing else. It bears many fruits, but those fruits are not growth. Growth is the increase of the seed. It's defined by the life of God conquering the soul of man. And this conquering happens when he is allowed to show us the truth of our salvation. This uh, subduing, you could say, uh, it says that in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, the subduing of all things to, him, to himself happens when he appears, when he is revealed. When he is revealed in you, you are transformed into his image. And there's so many scripture verses. 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all with unveiled face are beholding uh, as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. 1 John 3.2, We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Colossians 3.4, Whenever Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also are revealed with him. What, what, what this is talking about is the soul becoming acquainted with and then constrained by and then conformed to the reality of spiritual awareness. In other words, as our verse says uh, today, the Christ who is already there by new birth begins to dwell in us, move in us, operate in us by faith. Remember here, when he prays, when he's praying this for the Ephesians, when he's praying for Christ to dwell on their hearts by faith, he's praying for people who are already believers. He's praying for people that are born again. He's not asking, he's not asking God that they would be, be saved or be born again. He already has opened the letter by saying he rejoices that he's heard reports of their ever-increasing faith and love. He's praying for believers that Christ may dwell in their heart by faith. He's praying for something more than new birth here. He's praying that by the awakening of the spiritual senses, so to speak, which is just another word for faith, the Christ who is their life would both will and work in them according to the truth. So the soul begins to see with eyes of the heart, Ephesians 1.18 that we can look at the things which are not seen, 2 Corinthians 4, 18, and behold the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And it's this way that we begin to, quote, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That's all over Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, John chapter 10. He says so many places, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. We begin to as Psalms 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. See, this is, what, this is what is happening when the life that is in us begins to work in us according to faith and by the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection, the power of an indestructible life. Yet not I, but the one who mightily works in me. He does exceedingly more than you could ask or think according to the power that works within us. Or as our verse today says, I pray that you might be empowered with might in the inner man by his spirit. The cross begins to, to bring us face to face with, uh, with the truth and we begin to experience the power of the cross. And if you can hear what I mean by this, 
the truth begins to show you that there's nowhere, there's nowhere to run. There's no way to avoid it. It's a finished work. It's already done. You can't opt out. It's already real. Faith sees it and it automatically begins to work in us. The power of the cross working in the soul. It becomes, it works in you because it's already accomplished by him. And you see that the only reason you didn't know it before it was because you walked in darkness. You walked in this make-believe world of shadows and imaginations. But truth makes you confront something that God has done, and the reality of it bears in upon you. And as I said before, it starts to redefine your universe. It starts to redefine everything. It's very difficult to describe it, but when you start to see by this light, all things are different. And, and it's not an overstatement to say that it redefines your, your universe because the, the cross has you somewhere other than you thought you were. And the cross has you dead to a man that you were identifying with, and it makes you confront that fact, the truth. It makes you confront it. It leaves you no, no options but to be conformed because it's all that's really real. And the more you see by faith, the more your options vanish away because they were never real to begin with. I've said this before, but it's like waking up from a dream. I hope, you can, I hope you're following me here. I know, uh, again, try to, try to see through the words. I know the words are weak, but faith makes you face into God's finished eternal purpose. And the power of the cross works in you because it has been accomplished by him. I, I tried to think of a better way to say it than that, but I, I, don't, I don't know a better way to say it than that. You, you come to know and experience his power, and you start to see just how powerful that judgment and that death really are. You see what is excluded. You see what is cut off, and there's no arguing because it's finished. You can't disagree except in your own imagination. Can, can you hear that? The only place you can disagree with God's finished work is in your imagination. And so that is where we choose to live, in our imagination. But there's no real arguing. It's not up for debate. God, God is showing you what is real, and it begins to work powerfully in you. You see it. And then the resurrection, which was once a historical fact about Jesus, starts to become a present reality about you. You were raised up with him. You say, oh my goodness, I see it. Wait a minute, this is what the Bible says over and over again. I was raised up with Christ. I, I had read the words, I'd never known the power of it. Truth conforms you to itself because it's real and everything else is, it, it starts to become clearly part of the lie. And you begin to face it. This is how transformation works in you. You begin to face it. It's always been real, but it's never powerfully worked in you because ignorance turned your back to it. You, you understand at last that this, this is an entirely different kind of knowing. It's not just a different subject known. It's a different kind of knowing. It's a knowing that doesn't even come out of you. It's, it's a knowing that is given to you. It's faith. That's what faith is. Faith is God's knowing being, being stitched into your soul by the Spirit of God. And every other kind of knowing is fine for everything other than spiritual reality. 
but you understand that to know anything spiritual, you must know with the Spirit's understanding, faith, the mind of Christ, the faith of the Son of God, the renewed mind. And of course, Paul says that Paul says that too. He explains that the natural man does, you know, does not uh, understand the things of the Spirit. They have to be revealed. 1 Corinthians 2.14 We have received the Spirit of God for the very purpose. Uh, for that very purpose. To, to, to awaken us to what He has given. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.12 we, be, we, we become able to comprehend and know realities that surpass knowledge. Ephesians 3.19 we, we know by the Spirit. We Quote, abound in real knowledge and spiritual discernment. Philippians 1.9, we are filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Colossians, Colossians 1.9, Paul prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the true knowing of him. Ephesians 1.17, Paul promises that in every, every way that we are otherwise minded, God will reveal this to us. Philippians 3.15, I mean, the verses that describe this are are everywhere. The New Testament's filled with them. And, and, and uh, even though you, you find it everywhere in the Bible, everywhere, even in the Old Testament, the revealing by His Spirit, I've, I've found that um, evangelical Christian religion often tries to squelch this kind of, quote, personal revelation. And part, part of the reason they do that is somewhat valid, but most of it, I think, is based in fear and, and hypocrisy. The valid part has to do with the sad fact that some of the flakiest and most ridiculous things ever witnessed on the planet have been done in the name of special personal revelation from God. That is true. But the primary reason why, why I think such a, a revealing of Christ by the Spirit of truth is, is frowned upon and discouraged is because leaders claim that it is too subjective to be trustworthy. It is not, as they say, concrete, like the written Word of God. But in saying such things, they fail to realize that their darkened carnal mind is every bit as subjective in its understanding and interpretation of the written word of God as the person they are criticizing. Christian religion can complain that the teaching of the Spirit, which, if it's true, always aligns with the written Scripture because they come out from the same mind. But they can claim that the teaching of the Spirit can end up being nothing more than man's opinions and wishful thinking about God, but I would argue that that is precisely what our doctrines and theologies are without the light of the Spirit. So the religionist says, no, our doctrines are safe because they come from the book. And I say, no, your doctrines come out of your mind as you read that book. And it's just as subjective. It's an illusion to think otherwise. Listen, you, you know, if you know me at all, you know I'm not talking about abandoning scriptures. Anybody that knows me knows, knows how much I value and read the scripture. I am, however, insisting that we abandon our darkened mind in favor of the mind of Christ. He is the one that grants his own understanding, whether that understanding is about the written word or whether that understanding is about the view of the defining word of God that was with the Father before a book was ever written about it. 
But anyway, getting back to, getting back to our, um, our subject, the spirit of truth. If we allow him, if we let him, and, and, and that's, that's certainly not a given, but if we let him, he brings us face to face with the inescapable finished work of the cross. And as we face it, we become obedient to it. And when I say obedient, I mean we align with it. I mean we line up and accord with it because it's real. And growth happens. What's growth again? Growth is the, the soul of man conquered by the spirit of Jesus Christ. We are conquered by the truth. We become the fragrance of knowing the truth. The soul of man is conformed to the life that has been deposited in it at new birth. We bear his image, not because we're trying to be like him, but because he himself is conforming our soul to his life. And it leaves, as you see it, as you come to know it, as the spirit of truth puts it in front of your face, it, again, it leaves you with no options because it's real, because it's it's, it's, it's not up for debate. It's like gravity. It, it's not open to discussion. You know, you can reject it, but only by pretending it's not real. Gravity, that is. I suppose, I suppose it would be possible for, for a person to trick themselves into a state of deception and confusion where, where they deny the existence of gravity. It certainly wouldn't change the reality of it, but it might, it might be possible to live in ignorance of it, I guess. But as soon as that person is actually willing to see the truth, gravity would not be a suggestion. It, it, it's not Isaac Newton's opinion. It would be a reality that stands apart from opinion and necessarily demands obedience. And that's the, that's the way, whenever we're talking about new covenant, new covenant obedience, this is the kind of obedience we're talking to. I mean, we're talking about, we're not talking, gravity doesn't say, hey, you should fall since you've jumped off that building. It's not a suggestion. It demands obedience. It's a reality that stands independent of opinion. And that's how, that's how knowing the truth in Christ works in the soul. If you will behold it, if you will see it, as 2 Corinthians 3 says, you will be transformed into the same image because it is finished. If you will come to know it, you will bear its image because he has done it. And anything contrary is your imagination, creating a world for you to live in that God has put away. But the truth demands, seeing the truth demand, demands obedience, just like under, seeing gravity demands obedience. You, 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 can't, you can't argue with it. I know I keep saying the same thing over and over again, but I'm trying to, to, to just, just throw it out there to you enough times that, that, that uh, you understand that what we're talking about here is, is, is a law, but not the law, not the law of words that is demanded upon you by a letter, but the law, uh, Romans 8, 4, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that demands the obedience of your soul because he is your life. And all it takes to allow this 
law to work in the soul is the true knowledge of it, is the awareness of it, is truth working in the innermost man. Everything else for you who are born of that spirit turns out to be a lie. And so it has power. It has power to conform you to itself. You can't resist it if you behold it in the realm and reality in which it operates. Again, going back to gravity, if, it, maybe if you were in space, gravity could be a concept that you could choose to believe in or not. But if you were translated out of space, outer space, I mean, and into the Earth's atmosphere, it's no longer an option. It's the same thing. If you are an atom, if you're not born of God, if you're not born of His Spirit, then you can decide whether or not you want to believe what God has done in the cross. But if you have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and made to dwell in the Son of His love, as Colossians says, the truth will show you that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is a reality. And everything done apart from that law is plastic fruit. Everything done apart from the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Jesus himself calls nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So seeing the truth, faith. Faith causes him. This is what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 3. He's saying that faith causes him who is in you by new birth to operate in you, to dwell in you, to function in you with liberty, liberty, freedom, freedom from your imaginations. So if you're hearing me uh, correctly, you're understanding that Christ is not in you to tell you what to do. Christ is in you to empower you in the inner man by his spirit. That's what, that's what our verse is saying. I, I keep bringing it back to that. He is in you. See, the inner man. You know, the outer man is your body. Inner man is your soul. Innermost man, the spirit of God dwells in, in, inside the soul. The inner man is the soul, and that's where God's business is. God, we, we often want to have God's business in the outer man. You know, God, tell me where to go, tell me what to do, tell me what to touch, what not to touch, what to say, what not to say. God, God's not really dealing there. He's dealing in the inner man. And what he's trying to do in the inner man is he is trying to empower you in the inner man by his spirit. He's in you to conform your soul to his image. And, and, then, and, then, and then, frankly, you can decide what to do or what not to do, but as you grow, your decisions, your will, your emotions even, become constrained by the truth. Your, your decisions come out from the truth. They are, they are um, I have this phrase here, they are compelled by the parameters of truth. And I know... I always apologize for words. I, I just don't know a better way to say it. You, you, one of the most common Old Covenant uh, teachings um, that is unfortunately alive and well in the body of Christ today is this notion that Christian growth or Christian maturity is the ability to receive God's daily instructions and then go carry them out. But that is not what God is, is desiring from you or, or from anybody. He doesn't want to change your day planner. He wants to change your soul. So growth 
isn't when God tells you what to do, but rather when you choose what to do, having been constrained and motivated and moved by the reality and truth of his indwelling life. Can you hear that? Growing up isn't God telling you what to do. Growing up is when his nature works in you in all that you do. You, you, you still get to choose what you do, but in his life, can, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ constrains me. Therefore, he goes on to say, I know nobody according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It reminds me of, uh, somebody asked me a question recently about spiritual gifts, and they, they asked me why it was necessary for Paul to tell the body of Christ how to, um, how to prevent problems with spiritual gifts, you know. And the thought behind the question, it was a good question, you know, the thought behind the question was, if the Spirit is genuinely the author of and source of these manifestations of the Spirit, why, why would Paul want to control this meeting by, for instance, putting a limit on how many prophecies were given, like he talks about in 1 Corinthians 14, you know, two or three, and then, uh, you know, that's it. Or, or controlling, you know, how, how the role of tongues functions in a meeting. If, if God's the author of it, why would... Why would he try to say this is how this should work and don't overdo this or whatever? And the answer to that question has a lot to do with what I'm talking about. When we talk about the manifestation of Christ, whether it is a spiritual gift or an expression of his nature or life or love or wisdom, we're not talking about Christ taking over your body and doing things with you like a puppeteer and a puppet. That's not, that's not how the, his... Um, spirit operates in your soul. He works in, in you according to faith. And what I mean by that is that he brings you, he brings your soul into a view of the truth, into a view of the light, into the mind of the Lord. And then the truth becomes the, the reality and person out from which you live and speak and act and decide. And faith becomes the, uh, the means by which all things that are that are in the believer by new birth begin to have manifestation. And so knowing the truth in this way conforms the, the soul to the indwelling person, but that does not mean that the soul becomes a, a puppet of that person, but rather the fragrance of knowing him. So the soul is always in charge of when a mouth speaks or when a hand acts. The life of Christ revealed doesn't doesn't start or stop actions or words, but it defines and fills with reality. And so spirit and life are, are saturating your words and saturating your actions. They come out from him. Jesus says, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are truth. Peter says to Jesus, you have words of eternal life. It's not just words about eternal life. They are life itself being expressed. And that's true of, of, of service or teaching or spiritual gifts or anything. This, uh, one scripture says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. In other words, you can't say Jesus made me do it. Jesus doesn't control what you do, but he changes what you are. He doesn't take over your body. He transforms your soul. You control what you do, but he defines what you are. As I was saying, God's 
business, therefore, is, is, is with you in the inner man. And Jesus taught that in so many ways. So, so many people are trying to find God's will in the outer man, in actions or directions or service or discipline, whatever. But this isn't how God is going to really work in you. God works in you by empowering the soul by the Spirit in the inner man. Ephesians 3. And that is accomplished by faith. And the goal is that Christ who is in you by new birth would reign supreme in every area of your soul and conquer every city. And then what you do and what you feel and what you want and what you think becomes constrained by what you are. Not, not by your convictions, not by your religion, not by your, uh, your morals that you see um, modeled in the life of Jesus Christ. Now that's all still you living. But what you do and what you feel and what you want and how you think and everything becomes constrained by the truth, constrained by the life of Christ. And that's what growth is. Growth is when your, when your soul lines up with his spirit in obedience. Obedience, conformity, alignment. And whatever you do, in word or deed, you do it in the name of that is the life, the nature, the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, remember that scripture, Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that's not attaching his name onto the things that you're doing. That is living out from his name. That is, that is having his name constrained. I, I wish I had a better word for that. Constrained, uh, uh, I don't know, cause, it, it demands obedience. His life working in, you, in your soul when it is known demands obedience more than the law demanded obedience of your flesh. It changes you. And what that is, what, what, what that is, is exactly what Paul says here in, 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 in Ephesians 3. That is Christ beginning to dwell in you, operate in you by faith. And that's what Paul's praying here in Ephesians 3. I'll just say it again in a sentence. That, that, the, that the Christ who is in them by new birth would operate in them, would have liberty to function in them as he confronts them with the truth and they are conformed to him. Amen. We'll stop there.